Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 107th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is how lawyers collect evidence from the web and properly authenticate it. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, We'd like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Today, our guest is Brett Burney, the principal of Burney Consultants, LLC. He focuses the bulk of his time on bridging the chasm between legal and technology frontiers of electronic discovery. He's also the co-author of the 2019 eDiscovery Buyer's Guide, which can be downloaded for free at www.ediscoverybuyersguide.com. Brett is also very active in the Mac-using lawyer community, working with lawyers who want to integrate Macs, iPhones, and iPads into their practice. And as usual, it's great to have you with us today, Brett. (laughs) It is wonderful to be back with both of you. Thank you so much for inviting me on the, what, 107 episodes. That's amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we're pretty amazed ourselves, but thank you, Brett. We're glad you're with us. And let's start out with a fundamental question. A a lot of times when you talk about evidence from the web, lawyers really don't know what you mean. They're not sure. So are we talking about websites, social media, anything else in the mix? Well, certainly all of the above on that. It, It certainly could be as simple as a web page, which today are not static so much, right, as maybe we used to think about in the old days. Uh, Certainly social media is involved, really because the web browser is how a lot of us will interact with social media, right? I mean, I know there's apps and I know there's other ways that we can get onto it, but today the, the web browser in many aspects has become sort of our operating system, right? So much that we do today, so much that we access thanks to the cloud and Gmail and getting access to information we need is really through a web browser. In fact, I often bring up the example of Google's Chromebook, right? A Chromebook doesn't really run any traditional software outside of the web browser because somebody that's using a Chromebook, like many of the children today in educational schools across the country, they use Chromebooks because everything is accessible through a web browser. So it really is all of the above and certainly just really any information that you're going to be accessing through a web browser. Well, Brett, we've, we also hear the, the term web content. Yeah. And is that really important? You know, I mean, the whole social media craze, and, and I know you've seen this, is it's nothing but, I think, folks taking photos and posting on YouTube and Twitter and, and you know, <laughs> right. in, Instagram. Right. And, you know, what? Well, I, I think Sharon just did that on our, our recent trip of Route 66, right? We took, the, 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 right, the, the photo of the, um, the the malts, right? The milkshakes, Sharon, that we had. Nice. That, uh, those that, were that one d- good milkshakes, yes. <laughs> that, those, that, was, that was a very popular photo, John. <laughs> so. It's but important. That's, <laughs> but that's what you would call web content, correct? Yeah. Yeah, John. I mean, I, I use sort of that phrase, web content, really as sort of a, a general umbrella, right? Because, well, 
at least the way that I, that I think of it, I use it as a way to really describe anything that we are really accessing through the web or through a web browser more specifically. And, and certainly just as like we talked about, it includes social media. It, it certainly includes pictures of, of milkshakes and, and what I had for <laughs> dinner and, and breakfast. Because obviously, as you guys know, there are many uh, instances and cases where sometimes that could be very important, right? Uh, maybe not so much because we care about if they had, you know, eggs Benedict for breakfast, but more specifically, <laughs> if if they were located at a particular restaurant, right, in a location when they were claiming that they were somewhere else at that time, right? Or you know, what, I, I know you guys see this probably a lot as well. They were posting pictures of themselves water skiing after they brought a complaint that they were injured on the job, right? <laughs> Something along those lines, whereas obviously that kind of information could it be extremely important to a litigation uh, matter. Uh, you know, really the fundamental question comes down to whether the post on web or social media platform, whether they're discoverable, right? And I mean, and, mm-hmm. and yes, all of that falls under the phrase electronically stored information as dictated in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and most state rules today. And really, that, that's why this information is so important, because it, it is electronically stored information. And if it is potentially relevant to a litigation matter, then we have a duty to preserve and produce that. So we see all the time that lawyers are, are just constantly Googling the parties in a case, opposing counsel, jurors, right. judges, etc. Do they have to collect and preserve that information? Yeah, so this is an important distinction, I find. Uh, many times when I talk to lawyers and I say something like social media, and even in the context of litigation, I find many times they only think of it in the context of an investigative aspect, right? I differentiate between an investigate using social media from an investigation standpoint versus a preservation standpoint, right? In other words, of course you're going to Google the opposing party and the opposing counsel, and you're going to look up their LinkedIn profile, and you want to see what they posted. I mean, today, that's how we could find information for an impeachment process, right? To, to go after a witness, to say what the, the, they said, or you posted this, or you worked here, but then you said you didn't, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, in the past, we used to hire private investigators, right, to, to go and snoop on people, right, to see if they were walking to their car, running around the yard when they claimed they had to use crutches, right, and they would take pictures on the, on the corner. Mm-hmm. And today, we just go to the social media, and we can find pictures where they're posting all kinds of stuff on there. Now, that's the investigation side, right? And of course, we use that, really, it is the way that we find information out about the other party, and I think most of the time, we have a duty to use that information to find out about the other party. But then the other side is the preservation side, right? And when we talk about preservation side, it's almost like any other electronically stored information. You or or your client have a duty to preserve and produce any electronically stored information that is potentially relevant to a litigation matter. It's no different than email or any other electronic documents where we find information today. So on the preservation side, quickly, if a Facebook post or a tweet is potentially relevant to a matter, then yes, we have to preserve that. And typically that's your own client, right? Or unless, of course, you're putting that in a request for production. Just quickly, I, I know there was a there's a matter out of Virginia uh, several years old. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if you had some kind of an involvement in this, being in Virginia there. But it was a, a case where a husband lost his spouse to a very tragic 
car accident. It was a mm-hmm. concrete truck that fell over onto, onto the car as they were commuting to work in the morning. And in suing the truck driver and the concrete company, the husband apparently showed his lawyer his public Facebook profile. So these were publicly available uh, pictures where he was drinking beer with a, with a group of, of folks after the accident happened. And he had a t-shirt on that said, I heart hot moms. You know, not a showstopper for the case, but certainly didn't look good, right? And apparently somehow the lawyer was complicit in helping the client or allowing the client to erase that profile. They did not properly preserve the Facebook profile and the information on there in that in that post. And apparently the client somehow had connected with the other side or sent a message to the opposing counsel through Facebook. And so they knew that those pictures were there, but they erased them. And that is where we're talking about the preservation side. Yeah, that was we were not involved in the case, but we've okay, certainly good. Been, we were sir yes, we were we, we've certainly been teaching it, and of yeah. course the law, lawyer was in fact disciplined. The lawyer hid the evidence, yeah. uh, uh, told the guy to get rid of the stuff, and then hid right, the fact right. of him doing it, uh, and he was he was disciplined, and then ultimately he left the practice of law. So that's a yeah. sad story all the way around for not you know not fulfilling your your ethical duties. So that was that was just sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you probably saw the PowerPoint slide, Brett, where we had him in that T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. I did. I have seen it. I, that's how I, I, I knew I had seen it before. And in fact, I just did an educational session on that as well. And like you said, it is sad and tragic all around. But yep. to me, those are some of, and that's at least a good thing to keep in mind from a preservation side, you know, versus an investigation side. They obviously knew that it was there. And the other side was looking at this client's Facebook profile. It's just, unfortunately, they made some bad decisions on not preserving that information. Well, let's take that a little bit further, Brett. And as, since we're talking about preserving the, the web content and collecting it and all that, I guess kind of two things on, on that. First off, when we're talking about the preservation of that, that web content, how much is required to be collected? And what do you think about lawyers doing that versus third parties? Ooh, yeah, those are <laughs> excellent questions there. Uh, you know, on, on the how much side, What's really overwhelming here is that there is so much overwhelming information, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. I mean, with social media, it could just go on and on and on, and you can just keep scrolling and keep scrolling. And I mean, in, in a way, that's not much different than what we deal with today in the scope of collection, right? In other words, if you know, if there's a there's a date range on email that we might want to collect that's helpful, or maybe only certain custodians or use search terms, that kind of a thing. So in a way, we can apply a lot of that limits on the scope of collection, even to social media. It just, frankly, has to be reasonable. And of course, you have to do your due diligence in, in, in looking at that. But if the lawyer should be involved is a question. I, I haven't found this come up very much. And of course, um, uh, we might talk about this just a little bit more as well. I, I always remind lawyers, the standard is reasonableness, right? It's not perfection. Mm-hmm. So you have to make sure that you are doing the right job. We'll talk about a couple of tools in a, just a moment here. But I also tell a lot of firms and lawyers I work with is be cognizant of the fact that if you're doing the collection yourself, then you're basically inserting yourself or your firm into the chain of custody, right? Now, that may not mm-hmm. be the end of the story, but just be aware of it, obviously, because if you have a paralegal or assistant or a junior associate or somebody go and collect that information from a web content, just like anything else, you're inserting yourself into that chain of custody. And so at some point, the questions may arise. What did you do? How did you make sure that it was properly preserved? That kind of a thing. 
Well, one of the whiny questions we hear from lawyers now and again is, can I just print a website? Yeah. Hey, why, does, why doesn't it look like what's on my computer screen? So, yeah. So what, what do you tell the lawyers who are whining, at, for sure, what do yeah, you tell because, them at that point? Right. I mean, that's one of the simplest ways to do it, right? I pull up this web browser and I've got this web page and this is what I want, right? I want to preserve what I see on my screen. So you all know you can go to file and print and you can print out that website, but it never looks like what it looks like on the screen. I mean, in some websites it does, but you know, the way that websites are, are assembled today is maybe a good word to use for it, is it's not just in the old days where we you know put a pretty background and just put some text on it. I mean, today you go to a website and there's autoplay videos that happen and there's images and pictures and then dynamic ads happen. There's all kinds of stuff and all of that content is being pulled from a variety of different resources and locations on over the web. So it's extremely hard to print something like that because the way we look at the web today, it is really dynamic in nature. And so simply printing a website is number one, not necessarily gonna look like what it looks like on your screen. In fact, most of the time it will not look like that. And number two, we can get into this just a little bit more too, that you're not capturing a lot of the metadata that might come with that, right? Some cases you hit print and it'll put the date on the top of the of the printed page. And in some cases it'll also put the URL on there, but many times it's truncated, all that kind of stuff on there. So it's not capturing sort of the information that you may need to properly authenticate that, that quote, preservation of that website, maybe in a court or for a matter later on. Very well explained, and the whining has stopped. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is how lawyers collect evidence from the web and properly authenticate it. Our guest is Brett Burney, the principal of Burney Consultants, LLC. Well, Brett, before we, we went off to the break, you were talking about dynamic web pages and why, and why printing it just, just doesn't you know work all the time. Yeah. But why is it so hard to collect and preserve web content and social media? Is that, is that really the, the driver, is this whole dynamic content? That's what I see most of the time, John. I mean, there's, there's obviously other things that come into play here that, you know, depending on the site that you're at and what kind of maybe a back end that they're using. I mean, the fact that it really is compiling so much information from many different places, you know, most of the time we all, when we go to a website, we may only want to look at the text or read the text of that website. And we're not always so interested necessarily in some of the ads that pop up and all kinds of stuff. But if we really wanted to preserve a, a site in the way that it looks, that might be something important, right? We may need to pull all of that kind of information on there. And, you know, not to mention the fact that also that 
in some cases, we are really talking about maybe taking a snapshot of a web page, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. go to a web page, or if you go to your LinkedIn profile or your Facebook, you may see an, an ad or something pop up for like, hey, you should check out this person, or you may be connected to this. But if you refresh the page or go back to that page, even just in the next minute or the next hour, it could be a little bit different, right? It could show you something different. And so, I find many times those are some of the challenges that it presents in being able to properly collect and authenticate this. And, you know, a lot of times that can just be explained in the fact that we took the snapshot at this date and time, much like a computer forensic image or something along uh, along those lines. The other thing, quickly, I would just say a company we'll talk about in just a moment called PageVault. They did a survey a few years ago uh, asking lawyers, like, what are the issues that they are challenges that they see when it comes to collecting web content? Uh, and one of their surveys, it was about 60% of those respondents mentioned that they are worried that they're not looking in the right place for social media content. Now, that's a little bit of a bigger issue, of course, because Mm -hmm. frankly, as you guys know, many lawyers, they're overwhelmed with like, well, I don't know where all I'm supposed to go. I tried to ask the client and they said, well, here's the areas, but there's more out there that they didn't know about. And so really, it's, it's hard from that aspect that they just may not know what they don't know, or they don't know where they're supposed to look all the time. And that can be overwhelming and challenging as well. Can I ask you a follow-up to that, Brett? You just got me thinking about that is, what about the issue of um, these browser plugins? And you know, what if I've got an ad blocker yeah. running and I've got all this other stuff and, and maybe what I'm seeing is not what the content generator you know, intended or right. what somebody else would see. Right. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I, honestly, the way that I've seen it, it that people deal with it, John, is really just to be aware of that more than anything else. Again, it doesn't have to necessarily be perfect, but it has to make the best representation many times of the web that you're looking at. And so just maybe even being aware of it, or if, sometimes if people are going at it from their own self-collection, we may recommend that they use a clean browser, right? Maybe use a different browser or Google Chrome if they usually use Safari or, or Internet Explorer or something along those lines. Something that's you know, maybe new, that can be clean in that aspect that may help a little bit overcome some of those. But th- those are good questions. Those are, those are certainly challenges that we typically don't see in some of the other collections of email and other electronic information. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting idea. I'd never actually thought about using a clean browser, but that makes sense. So I know a, a question that a lot of our listeners probably has is, what are some of the easiest, and of course, they always want cheapest, tools to capture <laughs> right. web content? <laughs> right. Yeah, always. Well, let's go back to the print screen. And I mean actually going to file and print, right? Which may not necessarily mean printing it out to a piece of paper. It could mean printing to a PDF as well, right? I see a lot of people do that because they think, mm-hmm. well, it's PDF, so it's still electronic. <laughs> we just we just converted it to PDF. But you're really using the print tools. And so the same issues happen is that it's typically not going to look like what you see on your screen. Now, that may be an okay method in some instances. I don't want to say that that should never be used. It's just the lawyers need to be aware, of course, that it may not look exactly what it's supposed to look like on the screen, so somebody could question that. And in some cases, as long as they're willing to and they're comfortable with the idea of of them maybe having to explain exactly how they did that capture, as it were, or that collection, that may be totally fine. And in many cases, I always recommend that they document their tasks. In other words, I visited this web page on this date, and I used the file print method to create this collection. 
I always recommend that they need to document that somewhere just so that they can refresh their memory if the question would ever arise months down the road that, well, how did you do this, uh, this capture on that? But number two, in a similar way, I also recommend sometimes people look at doing a screen capture, right? We used to have the, well, I guess m- most keyboards still have that print screen button on the keyboard. We typically don't mm-hmm. use it, but Windows has a snipping tool and Mac has a, a tool that you can use to do a screen capture. Or there's other tools out there like Snagit and some of these that will do a beautiful uh, snapshot of the page. In fact, some of these tools will even let you scroll down and do like a long image of a long website if you wanted to do something like that. Now, the issues there, of course, is that if you do a file print to PDF, it may not look like what it looks like on the screen, but it is still searchable, right? Because you can search the text. If you do a screen capture, it may look exactly like what you see on the screen, but it's just a picture then at that point, right? So certainly you could do OCR or something like that to make it searchable, but those are just some of the limitations. Those are certainly the easiest and the cheapest options to capture web content, but neither of those methods are gonna adequately capture the metadata associated with that web content, other than the fact that you might be documenting it yourself as to what you did, the tasks that you did. And of course, both of these methods will put you into that chain of custody. So let me take you to the other end of the spectrum then, Brett. What about some of the best and, and potentially expensive right. tools to capture capture web content? And I, I, right. I'd be, be interested in your, your thoughts on that because we've, frankly, we've spent a lot of money on some of these tools yeah. and they don't tend to work well. <laughs> Yeah, and and I and I found that you know there's always been several tools uh, in the past where we could capture very large websites. They would follow the links down several stages, for example, and do that. Uh, it, frankly, I've just been surprised, John, just like you, that there aren't a few more tools out there to help us in this aspect. But here's two quick ones I'll I'll share with you. Number one is I mentioned earlier. It's a company out of Chicago called Page Vault, and I think it's Page Vault. You can put that link in the in the show notes there, but they have a third, first of all, they're a third party, right? So they take care of this. In other words, uh, they provide you an affidavit if necessary and the fact of their collection efforts. Number two, they offer an on-demand service. So you can go to their website and you can see, I think they'll do a Facebook capture profile for maybe starting at $200, but they do YouTube and Twitter feeds and they do several things, which is really nice. They actually provide you with a PDF at the end. In other words, that's your deliverable as a PDF file, but they provide a cover page that has all the information about the IP address, the date and timestamp, all that kind of stuff. They provide, uh, as I mentioned, an affidavit as to exactly how that they did this collection. And they do little things like um, at the end of of a page, before the next page starts, they have a little bit of a page overlap. So in other words, you're not missing any information that potentially could have been missed in between the two pages. Uh, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. It, you know, mm-hmm. if we, like there's no pages in a, in a Facebook profile or, or there's no pages in a, in a, we just continue to scroll, right? right? Right, But when we put it into a PDF, we have to paginate that information. And in many cases, we might lose something because it's in between the, the, the page borders of that. Anyway, it's little tiny things like that that PageVault does very well, I think, and it's very helpful. The second tool has been around for a while. I'm sure you guys have maybe used it too. It's X1, just the letter X and the numeral one. 
They used to do desktop search. They have now come in, gone into this world of social discovery. And this is a very high-end tool. It's a very expensive setup in the sense that you've got to know what you're doing because you're basically letting this run. But it does a comprehensive collection of, say, like an Instagram feed or a Twitter feed. You could even set this up to not only collect from the past, but you can say, I want this to collect You know, every two hours, do a snapshot of what this Twitter feed is, or frankly, just let it continue to run. Uh, it's an excellent, excellent tool. Takes a little bit of a setup, but if you really need to dig down into a Facebook profile or even a YouTube profile or whatever the case may be, that would be something that you would look at as well. Well, I'm going to interrupt and ask John, do you have any comment on X1? Because I think we found it problematic. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and people have different experiences with different tools. So, yeah, but our experience with X1 has not been happy. Well, two things, I think, to, to echo what Brett said, it's a complicated piece of software. It's expensive. It's not a cheap thing. Um, in the early days, it was very, very good. And again, I'm going to speak from our, our personal experiences. But then what happened was it broke. Facebook changed <laughs> a lot, and yeah. it, it just wasn't keeping pace. And, and frankly, we weren't willing to spend the thousands and thousands of dollars a year uh, to, to, have, to pay for that subscription when it didn't do the job. And that's been our experience anyway. And so we've, we, we abandoned yeah. it. I, I kind of get the feeling you hadn't heard that before, Brett. I have heard. In fact, it, it brings up another quick uh, couple of points on this. Number one, Facebook and Twitter and all these these services will change their backend technology yeah. all the time, right? Yep, I mean, I, yeah. I don't use the Twitter app. I use a, a third-party app on my Mac to access Twitter, but they can't do notifications and things the same way because Twitter will keep changing some of that. So to an yep. extent, that's a little bit of, 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 of an issue there. And then secondly... All of this information I'm talking about has to be publicly available, right? Both PageVault and X1 can't go into somebody's account. They can't hack into their private account, right, if they've protected everything. So everything that we're talking about here will either require them to go into a public access account, or if you want it to collect something on a private side, you are going to have to provide those credentials, which obviously yep. if it's the other side, they're not going to be doing that. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there as well, that we're talking about publicly available information. Some courts will allow you to go into the private side, but you've obviously got to bring that before the court for an order on that. Yeah, I think it's, that's a very good point, Brett, is, is the having the credentials. We have other tools that we've yeah. used as well um, where we, in fact, legally have obtained, right, the login credentials uh, or the friend's credentials because, you know, you've, yeah, in, right. in Facebook's case, uh, and you're able to go. But but our experience has still been, they're, they're not, just as you had said earlier, there are not a lot of tools out there that do a very good job capturing social media content. And, and, I, yeah. and I'm surprised, like you. <laughs> Yeah, we have struggled to as to what we should do. We hold management meetings on all this, so we haven't got a great answer. Uh, we're, we're trying to find the best possible answer, but none of the answers are good. So. Yeah, and, okay, and I'll just throw out one quick thing. This may have been maybe on the cheaper side, but, you know, Facebook and some of these other services have – I forget exactly what they call it now, but it's like download my data, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, it yeah, does yes. allow you to do yeah. that. And in some cases, that can work as well. You just have to be aware of the limitations. I, John, you might be able to speak to this a little bit more, but you're basically downloading uh, sort of like a, a data dump, if you will, of everything mm -hmm. on, on your profile. And you may have to kind of rejigger that together to make it look similar to what you're looking at. But in some of these cases, that's why PageFall, the next one, to me, I find most people are more concerned about the fact that it looks the way that it looks like on the screen <laughs> as opposed to maybe kind of having to, you know, reconstitute that information in a certain way. Right, right. 
Well, we're we're going to skip over, I think, uh, one of the t- topics there that we we had discussed talking about because of time. But let's just finish up with what are some of the primary objections raised to the collection of web content? Yeah, I, I think we've danced around this a couple of times already. First of all, it doesn't look like what it purports to be. is the is the simple is the simple <laughs> objection I hear most of the time. Right? Many times, if they uh, provide something in a in a printed version, then They'll go to the website and they're like, well, wait a minute, what you're providing here as a PDF, as, as, as an exhibit, doesn't look like well on the, on the web page. Um, I know there was one crazy matter not too long ago, um, a few years ago, where the, the law firm didn't know how to collect and preserve the Facebook information. And so I can't even believe this, but it's in the opinion. Somebody hand transcribed, the fa- they looked at the Facebook profile and they hand transcribed on the yellow legal pads ah, ah. the information that they saw on the screen and that's what they produced because they didn't know how else to to do that so obviously that's an extreme aspect but that's where i, I find some people their minds are, are going in this um so it doesn't look the same as one objection sharon i would say then the other one that i've heard several times is well wait a minute you don't have the metadata on here how do we know what you're providing here came from the actual website how do we know you didn't go into photoshop and create this that kind of a thing right so right. having a a date and timestamp or having some kind of a way that you've tracked or documented the task that you did, you know, even if it is a paralegal, being in the chain of custody doesn't mean you're going down the tubes necessarily, but just make sure that you know what you're doing from the sense of I'm documenting when I did this, where I visited. You know, it's no different than somebody talking about a picture that they took necessarily, but it's just making sure that you have a comfort level on on the steps that you took to preserve that information. (laughs) And if you can collect that metadata or provide that information, the date and time stamp and the the actual URL that you visited on what day, then all of that is what is... um, going to be most important. And then sort of along the same lines of what we just said, it's they'll, they'll just claim, well, this isn't what you say that it is. It's not what it purports to be. It's not the actual website. You've created this or you've doctored this somehow. And again, that just goes back to being able to make sure that, again, from a reasonable aspect, being able to explain what you've collected and what you're producing there. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect. You need to make sure you have a reasonable explanation as to what steps that you took to properly preserve and produce this information. I'm going to go through the transcript and see how many times you use the word reasonable. I bet that's what most people come away with, though, that that's the standard. It must be reasonable. Yes. Well, I just I would hate to see the bill for trans, hand transcribing on a yellow legal pad when when you have this really really arcane you know technology. It's called a smartphone. Yeah, yeah. take a picture. <laughs> take take a picture of the darn stuff. That's exactly right, and we've seen that. Well, Brett, I want to say thank you as always. We we love having you as a guest. Uh, you're fast, funny, uh, and we always have a good time. It's a party, so thank you for taking the time out of your workday to be with us. Always my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.